0: The History Show
1: with Marv Duncan. Good evening and welcome to a brand new series of The History Show. On this week's program.
2: I do use a mixture of virtual instruments, but I also record a lot of real instruments. I have a massive collection of Irish whistles um, and also a Celtic harp.
1: Modern music with a medieval makeover. We'll hear about the emerging genre of bardcore, a cultural phenomenon where musicians rewrite songs and evolve music backwards also.
3: So it is very much that sister against sister as well. And I think we have to see that as a very broad aspect of the civil war. It's not just the men. The women are absolutely split as well.
1: Mary McAuliffe on the Common Naman Convention a century ago this month and what happened when Republican women split over the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And to begin this evening, the story of the Irishman who mapped the world's tallest mountain. In September 1921, a small group of mountaineers, members of a British-funded expedition, reached a ridge high in the Tibetan Himalayas. Rising before them was the greatest mountain of them all. Chomolungma to the Tibetans, Sagarmatha to the neighbouring Nepalese and Mount Everest to this group of explorers. The expedition was led by Charles Howard Bury, an Irish veteran of the First World War. Its goal was to create the first maps of the mountain. Bury's life and the landmark 1921 reconnaissance mission that he led are the subject of an online exhibition called We Had Experience of Wonderful Moments. It's part of Westmeath County Council's Decade of Centenaries programme and you can find it at everest1921.com. To talk about it, I'm joined now by two guests. Frank Nugent is an experienced mountaineer, explorer and expedition leader in his own right. One of the lead climbers in the first Irish expedition, a successful Irish expedition to uh, Everest in 1993. He's also an author who wrote about Bury in his 2013 book, In Search of Peaks, Passes and Glaciers, Irish Alpine Pioneers. Also here with me is Ian Kennelly, historian in residence for Westmeath County Council, who researched and designed the exhibition. You're both very welcome indeed uh, to the History Show. Um, Ian, tell me a bit about Bury's background. He was, you know, He was part of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy. Why is he of any interest in Westmeath?
4: Uh, He's of interest in Westmead because he spent much or most of his life there in Belvedere House. He was born in London, but his parents' normal place of residence was in Offaly, Charleville Castle near Burr. And he grew up there, uh, educated by a German governess. His family also uh, had a connection to Belvedere House which he inher- near Mullingar, which he inherited in 1912. And subsequent to the expedition in 1921 to Everest and his political career in the UK, he settled in uh, Belvedere House and lived there for the remainder of his life.
1: And at what point, Frank, did he essentially become an explorer? Was it when he first travelled to Tibet or had he been involved uh, in climbing or expeditions before that?
3: Yeah,
5: he'd been involved from a very young age. His mother had a, a, a chalet in the Dolomites, so he would have went there for his holidays. And, of course, his guardian, his father died when he was age three. So his his guardian was Lord Lansdowne, who was uh, uh, Petty, uh, P- Petty Fitzmaurice. Petty Fitzmaurice, yeah, F- yeah. Fitzmaurice. And he was, at that stage, P- Fitzmaurice was the governor of Canada. And he was, shortly afterwards, became the viceroy of India. And, of course, he, he ended up being in various portfolios in the British government, foreign minister and minister without portfolio during World War One, and he was a, a confidant of uh, George VII. So they were wealthy. And he owns a lot of land. Owns in a lot the of family still does. But th- that business of travelling, it was in the blood and service to the Emperor was in the blood. So after his governess uh, in Tullamore, he went to Eton and from Eton to Sandhurst. And he was following a line from obviously uh, Lansdowne was his mentor. And of course, he, and he went to India then with the seventh and ninth rifle. That was his battalion. And every piece of leave he got, he went traveling. He he was very good at picking up languages. He, he was a very intelligent man and uh, he, he, he acquired lots of the various Indian dialects. And he was very interested in religions, Buddhism, but in particular, he was interested in. And as a result, he went he went to visit most of the great shrines. And he, he went disguised to Mount Kali he he smuggled himself into Tibet. while he was a, a, a captain in the. and he got reprimanded. He, he wasn't let go anywhere for six months after.
1: Because I mean, at that time, you couldn't just wander into oh. Nepal or Tibet and say, well, oh, I think I'll climb that one over there.
5: You know, well, what had happened in uh, England, our young husband had actually gone into Tibet and in fact, they slaughtered people at Lhasa, a very Im- infamous event, and they were trying to increase their influence out there. So there was a it was a good tug of war going on between the Russians and the Chinese and the British over Tibet. But the, the Tibetans were trying to keep them all out mm. unsuccessfully.
1: And Ian, what was his first World War experience yeah. like? He, uh,
4: as Frank said, he was with the 7th and 9th King's Royal's Rifles. He was at the Western Front uh, throughout the the whole of the war, pretty much. He uh, was at Ypres, the Somme. He was uh, in the German Spring Offensive of 1918. Again, he was at the front and he ended up being captured uh, by the German army uh, as they broke through the line in many places ended up spending the remainder of the war as a, as a prisoner of war. He made numerous, or he was party too, and eventually made his own escape from captivity. He could speak German and in, in his escape he remained free in Germany for a week uh, before he was eventually uh, recaptured and remained in, in prison until December of 1918 and then he returned to, to uh, civilian life, so to speak.
1: Let's return to Everest itself. I mean, I always think that, you know, we should we should stop calling it Everest. Mm. We should call it Chamalungma or That's Sagarmatha yeah. because they're much more evocative names. I mean, Mount Everest itself is called after somebody who was basically a complete yeah. non He was a he surveyor. Called, or yeah, something, or, he called know.
5: himself George Everest. Everest, right. He, he was highly insulted when people started calling it Everest.
1: He was a civil servant. In basically. fairness
5: to him, he, he wasn't responsible for the amount of being called after him. He was his successor, actually, nominated... A, because when they when they discovered Everest was the highest mountain, they did it from by trigonometry mm. from the uh, Indian plateau. So it was actually measured from a couple of points and they weren't allowed into Nepal or Tibet. So as a result, they said they didn't know local names for it, which I, you know, I do. So they obviously showed the Royal Geographical Society. They they named it in 1865 after George Everest.
1: Mm. And I mean one of the things Ian also about Howard Bury was he had he had money he was able to self fund. Yeah. How important was that when it came to organizing or taking part in expeditions? This
4: that was vital because that you know we've just spoken earlier about the amount of land he owned he was exceedingly wealthy which meant that he could he funded his own expedition in 1913 along the northern edge of the Tian Shan mountains for example so in 1921 it had long been a dream of uh, British explorers to reach Everest. And as you said, they couldn't enter the country because the Tibetans kept a close uh, guard on to who could uh, enter and who could uh, traverse through the country. Howard Bury was able to say to the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club in London who, could, who needed the funds, look, I can fund my own I can fund leadership of this exhibition and effectively bankroll it. Now, not entirely. They also funded it through signing media rights with uh, news agencies and with the Times in London and so on. But Howard Bury's wealth and his experience as a soldier and as an explorer were vital to the exhibition that came about.
5: And his interest in religion and in botany. He was a terrific botanist and his ability as a photographer. They all come together. His contribution, I mean, it's easy to say, They picked him because he had the money, but he he had the wherewithal. He had the intelligence and he had the motivation to do it and to make sure. It was very interesting if you read about it. When he discovered the person he needed to speak to was in Sikkim, he organised Porter straight away, crossed a 14,000 foot pass to meet him in Sikkim and then convinced him the importance scientifically of this exhibition, the importance of um, mapping the approaches, it was now that it was termed the third pole, because at that mm. stage they actually thought the other two poles had been reached, but uh, a couple of Americans had actually disguised the fact that they hadn't reached the north pole at the time. <laughs> but it turned out that an Amundsen had just reached it, the south pole, and the British were very aggrieved about the south pole. Of course, uh, and they thought they regarded. Everest has been in their corner of the world mm. and that nobody else. They wanted to be the first the British to get there,
1: uh, you know, you know, well, uh, when, they, when you talk about the expedition, all the talk is about, oh, there were seven or eight people on the expedition, which, of course, is total rubbish. There were dozens mm. on the expedition. Who else, in addition to this core group of Europeans, would have been involved? Guides, porters, all of that?
4: There was uh, there was a survey team. There was the, the main survey team, and there was uh, there was two survey teams, and one of them was, was run by a guy called Gunjar Singh. So he had Indian uh, surveyors with him. So you're talking, you've got your essential group, group of eight men, then you have another eight or so uh, Indian surveyors. Then you also have uh, Tibetan uh, interpreters. There was two guys in particular, a guy called Chetan Wangdi and a guy called Kazi, who were vital uh, to the exhibition's success. And then you have the porters and Sherpas, uh, Tibetans and Nepalese. So the whole the, the entire group was probably around 50 people. Mm. But as Frank would tell you, this was th- I
5: think, Frank, they were the first
4: group to ever use the Nepalese Sherpas. Oh, yeah.
5: Yeah, there, there were so many first, I mean, I mean, It's very easy to reduce Howard Bury's achievement down to, you know, he made a map, you know, they did so many things right. He came back and advised that climbing during the monsoon is crazy. The Hmm. the right window is from March to the approach of of the monsoon uh, or post-monsoon, there's a window there as well. He also advised that the Sherpa Boatius from Nepal would make the best. Now, he got that advice from Bell, who was the guy he went to meet in Sikkim, who advised me, if you're going to hire porters, porter, make sure you get the guys from Solokumbu. And he actually he spent time before the expedition to recruit those very porters. And as a result, the Sherpa have become the, the guides of of
1: Everest, really. Even though they're on the far side John of far the mountain. The side, yeah. So it was no easy job. <laughs> no easy job from Darjeeling, to yeah. get there. To, yeah, yeah to, to, well, to get them there. The side of the mountain, I mean, what, what he would have mapped is what you faced in yeah. 1993.
5: Well, the most interesting about it was that the the guy who did the exact map of Everest is a, a fellow called Oliver Wheeler. And he, he again, he, he was Canadian. or But his father came from Maddox down in County Kilkenny. And interestingly, his father went to Dulwich College which is the same college that Shackleton went to. Mm. But he emigrated when he was about 17 to Canada and he became an expert in photo geometry. And as a result, he ended up r- mapping the Rockies. And as a result of that, got very involved in mountaineering and became a founder member of the Canadian Alpine Club. So his son, Oliver, again, he, he, he was involved in the First World War. He was a captain in the Canadian. Then, of course, he fought with the, the Indian troops as well as as Bury. But he ended up uh, getting a job with the Indian Survey, so he was one of the surveyors that turned up. The, Howard Bury negotiated with the Indian Survey that they would supply the surveyors. One of them would do the exact photo geometry of Everest itself. The other guy would do a brand new map of Tibet. They'd no, they'd no map. They'd no survey ever done the Tibet, and another group of them w- would would resurvey Sikkim, so. The Indian survey came out of that very, very well off because they now had two geographical areas, Sikkim and Tibet, mapped in a way they never had. And the price of it was something like half a rupee or something per square mile, it turned out, when they worked it out afterwards. It was an amazing piece of economics. (laughs) And the only way they would have got that permission was on the back of Everest. And uh, so they managed to do a lot with it.
1: Ian, it was was a fairly long, it was a long expedition Mm. and, uh, you know, the kind of gear that Frank would have been wearing in 1993 didn't exist back in the early 1920s. So, I mean, I suppose they were there at a time of year when the the weather is is quite mild, actually. I mean, it's it's quite a pleasant place to be at that time of the year, but still you know, uh, dressed in suits and ties. and Yeah.
4: Uh, well, George Bernard Shaw saw a picture. There's the famous picture of eight of the members lined up and he said it was like a picnic party going to Connemara. <laughs> so, you it's tweeds and woolen jackets. And there's one, Guy Bullock, who was one of the climbers, he said at one stage they were in a very bad position on the North Call, I think, and they were facing really inclement conditions. But he felt OK because he had three pairs of woolen long johns so on. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs>
1: How high did they actually go? They didn't just go to what we think of now as base no, camp.
5: No, they actually got to the North Call. They got to the climb to the North Call. They got three of the climbers and three Sherpas. And the interesting thing about it, the Sherpas led the way. And and previous to them actually climbing on the thing, Mallory had given these Sherpas lessons in climbing. They climbed a the mountain called Ring, Ring Re, which is one of the mountains sort of between the wrong book Glacier but uh, in climbing that he was actually teaching them how to use ice axes whatever but they became so confident that they, they ended up uh, out ahead and they, they led the, the way up
1: okay you mention an evocative name yeah. uh, George Lee Mallory yes. explain where he comes in uh, comes into to all of this
5: well Ma- Ma- Mallory was probably the, the great English climber of the pre-war period and he, he hung over a fellow called uh, Geoffrey Winthrop. There was a set they used to go to Wales every Easter, and in fact, our friend, the guy around Conor O'Brien, he ran guns into Kilcool, He was a friend of his, and it was interesting if there was a difference between Mallory and and Bury. It was on Ireland. Mallory was much more sympathetic towards the Irish home rule and <laughs> Irish freedom <laughs> than and the Anglo-Irish Bury, the, the, was. Anglo-Irish yeah. landowner was going to be. So it was actually quite interesting. What? but Mallory was, we, the was the lead climber yeah, on that expedition on
1: the 21 expedition
5: he went to cambridge he, he wasn't wealthy his father was actually a, a preacher and he, he was a school teacher in winchester college that that was his job at the time he was going on everest but he was a bit was probably the top climber we're going to the alps every year and Putting up the doing the big routes, etc.
1: So he goes back in twenty two, goes back in twenty four. We'll talk about the twenty four expedition in in a moment, and Mm. I'll ask you both the obvious the obvious question. But the title of the exhibition Ian, comes from Mallory. We had experience of wonderful moments.
4: Yeah, there was an official narrative produced within a year of the, and it's very well written, really succinct, and Howard Bury provides most of it, but there's also um, sections written by Mallory and. Bullock and some of the other guys and Mallory had a great turn of phrase so I just thought it was a, a good uh, title for the exhibition and also Mallory, there was a difference, Harold Bury was really goal orientated, he just wanted to fulfil the mission whereas Mallory was more, he wanted to go off in tangents and explore this ridge and that ridge and that was another born of contention mm. between the two men.
1: Okay, now Mallory obviously famously died uh, with with Irvine on Everest in nineteen twenty four, which was the first, I suppose, really serious uh, attempt to to scale the peak. And there is still a question mark over whether or not he actually achieved the first. Either of them achieved the first ascent. Uh, many theories, speculating and uh, continued research into it. So sixty four thousand dollar question. I'll start with you. Do you think either of them made the the peak the summit
5: well they, they had an oxygen system and we don't know to, to what extent it worked you know so they they were seen disappearing they were seen into seen the clouds I, I, with, how close to,
1: uh, well, how there, were the, they from they,
5: they would have been uh, around the second step was where they were seen hmm. so if they got up the second step they went to the top you know and now, there's no reason to believe that Mallory as the sort of climber he was that he wouldn't have got up that it was a question of whether he had the oxygen. If the oxygen system worked, he probably did go up, you know. Mm. And I like to think he he got there. Everybody yeah. likes to think I he know got that. there. But <laughs> Sandy Irvin had a brownie camera. And uh, we haven't found his body. His body hasn't been found. But already. was the camera
1: not found? No. The camera hasn't been no, hasn't found. Been okay, been found. Mallory's body has has been, been was found, found a few yeah, years and ago. Ice axes and a but few, uh, Irvin is still missing. No, so.
5: There's a good chance Irvin might have fallen down the other side. You know, the Shun side. You know, It's hard to know. But if his body is ever uncovered and he ever finds the camera, there's a possibility that... The, the film would still be intact. Be, yeah. Yeah. Or there could even be a diary with something written there. You yeah. know, but there, there has, there's no hard evidence that he actually got there or not.
1: What's your hunch, Ian?
5: Frank has convinced me that they probably did, but
1: I, I can't <laughs> say for
4: certain. Yeah, nobody can say for
1: certain. Yeah, everybody except uh, Sir Edmund Hillary obviously wants yeah. to... Believe well, he did say there. that you is, know, well, coming
5: down alive was really the yeah, test. Yeah, no, getting up yeah. is
1: one thing. Everybody, more, far more people die on the way yeah. down than die on well, the way what up. What is
5: important is that their main quest was to find the most feasible route to climb Everest. They chose what's now known as the Mallory Ridge, which is the Northeast Ridge and the North Ridge. So... They reached the North Col, that's 23,000 feet in uh, 1921. They went back in 22 and uh, there was, uh, I think, seven Sherpas died in an avalanche. Mm-hmm. And uh, the real tragedy of it was that the, none of the sahibs were killed. Yeah, it was only Sher- it was it's only Sherpas. It was, a, it was a real shocker, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Mallory uh, had to overcome all of that. And he went back in 24 and as I said, they had a they had a go and we, we don't we don't know for sure. But the route, the Mallory route, is now proven to be the most feasible route. Mm. So in a way, they there were 100%. The, the map they produced was unbelievable. Wheeler's work, the photo geometry he produced, and the effort that went into producing that map, because he had to have good photographs. So it meant uh, you could only photograph one out of maybe three or four days. They missed and you wouldn't be able to picture. So he had to hang around there and his team of so far as Porter.
1: At the age of six, I had decided that I was going to uh, Mount Everest. And I didn't actually get there for another 40 years or so. Uh, but <clears throat> the reason I was fascinated and wanted to go Everest to Everest at the age of six was to search for a very famous mm. uh, creature of folklore namely the Yeti, the abominable the abominable snowman yeah. who started, I mean th- this is the time yeah. that that whole uh, mythos basically began and captured my imagination 30 or, well sorry 40, 40 odd years later uh, There was a guy, the
4: story it's, it's pretty well attested, there was a journalist uh, based in uh, what was then Calcutta, Henry Newman, who had uh, produced features for magazines newspapers and the writer's news agency. Uh, and one, one of the things I said earlier that the trip was partly funded by these media rights with deals with the newspapers. Howard Bury, even though he was in Tibet, was sending regular dispatches. Now there was about a three week lapse before they got back to Europe. Regular dispatches from the from the expedition. And in one of these, he mentioned that they were at uh, an area called Lac Lakhpala, up about 6,500 yeah. metres, Frank, yeah? yeah. And they found these tracks in the snow. And they were un- unusual, uh, large, th- not any identifiable. And the, the Nepalese Sherpas, with uh, Howard Bury, said these are the what they call the Mito Kangmi, and uh, this wild man that lives in the snow. And that word came back. That Howard Bury sent that word back as part of his uh, uh, dispatches. And this newman picked up on this phrase, and he translated it, seemingly mistranslated it as. Dirty snowman, filthy snowman. He thought that's not really a memorable phrase. He came up with, hey, abominable snowman. <laughs> and uh, the Times in London started printing this extraordinary series of articles. Crazy murderers, crazy hairy murderers was one yeah. of the stories. You know? yeah. And then one of them had uh, the subtitle Abominable Snowman. And that seems to have grabbed people's attention.
1: I would, yeah, you would understand. Yeah. Well, I would grab and, and has, <laughs> has done So, Howard
5: Bury is responsible for the Yeti. Yeah, yeah for the for the, for <laughs> the, for finding the Yeti. Bigfoot and and I mean, shirts. Frank,
1: do you reckon that the Sherpas actually believed this story or they were just having a bit of fun with Howard Bury?
5: No, well, I think what basically happens is if you've if you got a small a claw of a small border animal, it, it will tie out in the, in the sun during the day and it becomes bigger. Yeah, expands. And it, yeah. You know, that sort of technically explains. Well, what probably happened, but uh, yeah, they did believe, and uh, all mountain peoples, if you actually go into European, the European Alps, they all believed in wild people. I think parents used to threaten kids with, Don't go do out we, up uh, in the mountain, um, there's animals, wild men, there not, not, eat just, you. not just in the yeah, MLS, every by the all way. All in all Ireland, all they over, the all same over. Thing. Uh, around the world, mountains <laughs> of the world, there's all there's similar.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Abominable Someone for a period took over from the boogeyman, basically. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much. Anyway, OK, listen, uh, thank you very much, uh, both yeah, sure. of you, for, for coming in, for joining us this evening to talk about Charles Howard Bury and his historic expedition. That's Ian Kennelly and Frank Nugent. And uh, that Westmeath County Council Decade of Centenaries uh, programme, which is online, the exhibition, We Had Experience of Wonderful Moments, is at Everest1921.com. com. Mm-hmm. After the break, we'll be hearing about the YouTube sensation Hildegard von Blingen, who reimagines modern songs with medieval instrumentation and Shakespearean lyrics. Stay with us.
2: Follow us on Twitter
4: at RTÉ History Show.
1: We're going to take a look now at a genre of music that takes its inspiration from the past to create a unique soundscape that seamlessly combines the old and the new. Bardcore, as it's known, has exploded in popularity online over the last couple of years. Our reporter, Colum Flynn,
0: spoke to one of Bardcore's most popular artists. A song that is instantly recognisable. Dolly Parton's Jolene. Jolene,
4: Jolene, Jolene. Jolene.
0: But what if someone took that song and re-recorded it as if it were in the Middle Ages?
2: I think Dolly Parton just wrote such an excellent song that it works in any genre, but it particularly translated well. And I had a lot of fun riffing on the chords a little more.
0: Well, that's the voice of someone who did, taking the sound of the song back 500 years or so. Welcome to the fantasy world of bardcore music.
2: Bardcore is sort of an emergent genre. It's I call it pastiche. It's medieval-inspired music, usually involving covers of modern songs.
0: That's the voice of a YouTube sensation.
2: Well, my online name is Hildegard von Blingen. Um, I have a YouTube channel that I started two years ago, around the start of the pandemic, and I've been um, working away on it ever since.
0: She takes modern songs and gives them a medieval makeover, taking popular songs like this... And making them sound like this... So your YouTube name is Hildegard von Blingen. First of all, explain the name.
2: Yes, uh, the name was chosen on a whim. Took me about 30 seconds to come up with a pun. And then I realized that there was no going back. So Hildegard von Bingen was an actual historical person from Germany. And she is very famous for her music, uh, but she was also a mathematician. She ran a, a convent. And she was an all-around very learned, amazing person who, on several occasions, actually stood up to the Pope himself.
0: (laughs) Wow. She was an abbess, wasn't she? A a Dutch abbess? An abbess,
2: yes. That's the word I was trying to reach for.
0: (laughs) And what was it that attracted you to her?
2: The the chants she wrote are some of the best ever written from, from that entire time period. They're mostly for women and I just imagine what it would have sounded like to, to be in that space and hear them all singing together. They seem simple on the surface, but are actually incredibly complex, beautiful. They require intense uh, commitment to technique, a wide range. So I, I, I chose it out of respect, even if it seems a little silly. I need
0: Hildegard von Blingen is 29 and lives in Canada. She works as an illustrator and graphic designer in the film industry and started making these covers when she lost her job during the pandemic.
2: I, I came to it through Dungeons and Dragons and a love of Lord of the Rings, a, a love of history as well. I broadly enjoy medieval music uh, all the way up to you know Baroque I also listen to modern music. I don't just sit at home <laughs> in my, my abbey listening to only hundreds of years old music.
6: <laughs> I saw you dancing in a crowded room. You look so happy when I'm not with you. I saw thee dancing from the gallery. The locust game and I am not with thee.
0: How do you create the medieval soundtrack under your vocals? Are you using software or real instruments?
2: I, I do use um, a mixture of virtual instruments, uh, but I also record a lot of real instruments. I have a massive collection of Irish whistles um, and also a Celtic harp.
0: Ah, and then we have to mention now the Irish connection because is it your mother who's from Ireland?
2: So it's her her father, from, uh, was from Ireland
0: Do you know what part of Ireland?
2: Oh you caught me No <laughs> I'm, I'm forgetting now <laughs> um, I'll have to get back to you on that one
0: <laughs> And she did It was Belfast Her YouTube channel has become extremely popular but despite having millions of fans now for her music she wants to keep her anonymity
2: I think everyone imagines that they'll enjoy fame, that they want attention. I enjoy keeping this um, separate from my life and having it be about what I create and not about how I look. Uh, it creates a you know, a fun mystique or like a story, an extended universe even.
6: I got my red circle tonight Dancing in the dark in the pale moonlight
0: So how many views have you amassed to date?
6: I don't
2: know it off the top of my head, which is maybe a good thing, because I try not to obsess about it. <laughs> Definitely in the millions.
0: Make that just under 40 million.
6: Kiss me once before the I so
0: And did you ever imagine you would get this kind of reaction?
2: No, it was a complete surprise. Uh, but it's it's been a lot of fun. There's always this this interest in, in fantasy, because bardcore really is a fantasy, there's nothing particularly historical about it.
0: That's an interesting point, and that was going to be my next question. How accurate do you think, historically accurate, the sounds that you are creating are, or how much of it is, as you put it, fantasy?
2: If I had to put a number on it, I'd say maybe 10% accurate. I mean, historical accuracy, I think, is uh, kind of a, a difficult concept in itself because we're, we're only ever guessing what anything sounded like. With music, we have very little to go on, and so much secular, secular music wasn't even written down. A lot of it was just passed around by, by ear. So what I can say is that my covers are vaguely medievalist. They are pastiche. And and the lyrics themselves are actually in early modern English which is you know the Elizabethan Shakespearean era it has nothing to do with with medieval times
6: <laughs>
2: I want it to stay fun and and remain something I do as a passion. I do mean to keep doing this as long as people are listening, I'll keep I'll keep making music.
0: Well, I don't have your real name, but I just want to say Hildegard von Blingen. It was a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much.
2: Oh thank you. This was a lot of fun. Kiss me
6: once before the cause.
1: an early music-style remake of Lana Del Rey's Summertime Sadness. That's ending Column Flynn's report on the YouTube sensation Hildegard von Blingen and how she gives modern, popular music a medieval makeover. After the break, I'll be joined by Mary McAuliffe to talk about the Cuminamon Convention a century ago this month and how Republican women split over the Anglo-Irish Treaty.
2: Follow us on Twitter at @RT RTÉ
1: History Show. On the 5th of February 1922, hundreds of delegates attended the annual convention of mBan, which was held in the Mansion House in Dublin. The convention was called so that the women of mBan could vote on whether they, as an organisation, should accept or reject the Anglo-Irish Treaty. The convention was a hugely important event. The newspapers of the day all reported on it, yet it has been somewhat neglected and overlooked in the narrative of the lead-up to the Irish Civil War. Joining me in studio to discuss what happened at the convention and the aftermath is historian Dr Mary McAuliffe, Director of Gender Studies at University College Dublin and also the biographer of Margaret Skinner, one of the women who in fact attended the convention amongst uh, many other aspects of a fascinating life. Mary, the Dahl voted to accept the treaty, as we know, in January of 1922. Kamanaman didn't hang around because a month later, before the IRA actually met to decide their attitude, they called their convention. But not all the branches of Kamanaman were represented. What happened to ensure that there wasn't a kind of a full quota, full attendance?
3: Well, um, obviously, the executive of Cuminamon had already uh, made their position clear prior to the convention and and they were in the majority anti-treaty. And when the convention is called then for the 5th of February 1922 only just over 320 branches attend, and we reckon there would be upwards of between 650 and 700 branches of amon in late 1921, 1922 in existence. So that isn't a huge amount. Now, there are a number of issues. There was a rail strike in Munster, so it stopped a lot of the Cork and Kerry branches coming up, and, and they reckon about 33 of those branches, particularly from around Cork would have been anti-treaty so we could possibly add them in. There was also the fact that a lot of the pro-treaty women talked about the fact that it seemed uh, you know, accepted that the common Amon convention would go anti-treaty and perhaps the pro-treaty women weren't particularly welcome. People like Jenny Wise Power were talking about the fact that the nights before the treaty as women delegates arrived there were discussions and a rigging rigging going on of the voting. So because the executive had already gone that way and the six women TDs had all voted against the treaty, including Countess Markovic, of course, who was president of Cumin you don't have a huge attendance of the anti-treaty. And Cal McCarthy has done some interesting work in his book on the convention numbers. And just to give you an idea, of the 375 branches in Munster in 1921, only 80 come to Dublin in 1922 to the convention with the 33 standard, Leinster had 188, only 144 come to the convention. So you see, there is less than 50% attendance. But then of the 50% who didn't attend, could you say they were all anti-treaty or pro-treaty? And the thing is, we can't know. We know some of them would have been pro-treaty, but I would argue not enough of them would have been pro-treaty had they all been there to actually overturn that anti-treaty vote. I mean, the
1: 50% who did attend were an interesting straw poll, to put it mildly. And the yes. result was overwhelmingly
3: against oh, the treaty. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, the There was only a few pro-treatyites there, including some of the senior leaders now. Somebody like Jenny Wise Power and Min Mulcahy were very, very important. And they make very good speeches for the treaty. And they leave then once the vote has been taken. But overwhelmingly, they went with Mary McSweeney's proposal on what they were to vote on.
1: Interestingly, though, I mean, I think the point has been made that the, the six female members of Dole Aaron have skin in the game, as it were. I mean, everybody had skin in the game, but they in particular, they were related to, you know, to, in many cases, uh-huh. the case of Mary McSweeney, uh, uh, in the case of a number of them, Kathleen um, Clark, for example, that they had brothers, husbands who had died. The Common Amount Convention is is quite different. They're they're not speaking on behalf of dead Republican heroes, they're speaking on behalf of themselves.
3: Well, even Mary McSweeney is speaking on behalf of herself because the, the resolution she puts forward is the Executive Common Man reaffirms the allegiance to the Republic, that is the proclamation obviously, and the Republic declared in 1916, and therefore cannot support the Articles of Agreement signed in Dublin on December 6, 1921. So they're all speaking from the standpoint of an ideology. Even Margaret Skinner, as you mentioned, whose biography I wrote, Her main point in her speech to the convention is that she could not recognise that anyone who took the oath of allegiance could be a true Irish man or indeed Irish woman. So really, speaker after speaker give impassioned and resolute declarations that they cannot sign the treaty because of their ideological and political standpoints, particularly around the oath. There is some mention of the border, but not a lot. It's mostly about the oath and the treaty ports are mentioned and that betrayal, that sense of betrayal of the Republic that was declared in 1916. And the proclamation had always been a, st- a touchstone for political women, not just about the Republic, but because it guaranteed equal rights and equal opportunities in that Republic. For women as well. So for them, that was there, and, and it will continue on into the Free State with Kathleen Clark, Jenny Wise Power, ironically harking back to that proclamation when they're resisting the anti women legislation that will be coming down the line, as we know now.
1: And did the debate in any way parallel the debate that had taken place the previous month in the Old Aaron, in the sense, I mean, you mentioned, for example, that. Partition did not feature very highly. The oath of allegiance was far more uh, was far more important. The fact that the de- delegation had not come back with a republic was far more important. That would seem to parallel what was mm-hmm. going on in in Dáil as well.
3: Yes, and on the other side, the few anti or few pro treaty who did speak, Jenny power herself. Talk about the uh, stepping stone argument, freedom to freedom. the freedom to mm. achieve freedom, exactly as as Collins and Griffith had put forward, and they will use that when they go on to set up Cumann na after they split with Cumann Éireann. But Max Sweeney and the other speakers against the treaty carry the floor overwhelmingly.
1: Now, the the fact that there wasn't that much discussion of partition, which was also the case in the Dáil debates as well, there's a certain logic to that, isn't there? Not that people were uninterested, about partition and uninterested in the fact that a border had, in effect, of not the physical border hadn't been created at that stage, but would, would a few years down the line. But there was a certain logic uh, to a non-discussion of partition, wasn't there, on the part of anti-treatyites in particular.
3: Well, you know, obviously the border had already been been in place and, and it had become slightly normalised that there was a Northern Ireland executive of Northern Ireland government. But also they needed to get things sorted in the South, in in their own uh, relationships between, you know, were they going to accept this treaty? If this treaty was going to be accepted, the border was going to become hardened. Uh, If you rejected it, then the uh, issue of the border becomes a moot point, really, because the war continues. So the discussion is more about what they're ideologically opposed to, which is the oath and that continuing relationship with Britain, because they want that republic. And, Mm. you know, the treaty goes away, the republic again becomes an option.
1: Um, now, Common Nusirsha, an organisation that I think would be very unfamiliar to most
3: people. Yes, well, it doesn't last very long. It's only there for uh, almost two years. But within a month of the split, of the vote and the split, there is an ad in the newspaper for the setting up of a new women's group supportive of the treaty. And they have a meeting again in the Mansion House, and 700 women turn up. And what they want to do, and Mrs Connolly, ma- Sean Connolly makes a statement to uh, set up a group of women uh, to show that not all the women of Ireland were against the treaty. And this was a, again, a stepping stone argument was made by the women. What happens once Coming the Saoirse is set up, it becomes much more a support to the National Army, but it doesn't become militant in the same way as the anti-treaty coming on
1: When we... Talk in terms of the Civil War, the expression brother against brother is used a lot, but there must have been a lot of sister against sister. There must have been a lot of sundered relationships, Mm -hmm. relationships that had been very, very close uh, that effectively end when the Civil War begins.
3: Oh, they do. Um, I mean, the common, the, the common among the anti-Treaty common among women become very bitter about the common the women who also act as woman searchers for the national army and the uh, state police because uh, obviously you need women to search the common among women and we know like hundreds of common among women are arrested so they're acting as that both inside and out of prison they're there when the common among women are moved from Kilmainham and Mountjoy to North. Dublin Union's lot of violence, which the common the women, and they're called Com the Searchers by the the Cuman women. they They are gathering intelligence work, so they're using their connections with their erstwhile comrades to get intelligence on the anti-treaty IRA and Cuman. But you have families who are split. The Ryan family are very uh, famously so, you know, the Rhines of Tom Cool, Men Mulcahy, Men Ryan, that was, uh, married to Richard Mulcahy. Her sister Nell Ryan ends up in Kilmainham jail and on strike as an anti-treaty coming her. And Richard Mulcahy does nothing to stop the uh, poor Nell on her, her hunger strike in Kilmainham. And it is said much later um that the Ryan family, when they would go back to Tom Cool to visit, always said the only way they could keep the family together is nobody talk about politics because they were, it split down the middle, pro and anti treaty. Uh, Kathleen Brown, for example, who was a senator later in the Irish Free State Senate, best friends with Nell Ryan, both from Wexford, South Wexford, best friends with Nell Ryan in their early years, split on the treaty. Kathleen Brown says Nell Ryan is trying to get the anti treaty IRA to assassinate her. She gets the national soldiers to go and attack Nell Ryan's house. They never speak again. Jenny Wise Power, in whose shop the proclamation had been written prior to 1916, her businesses are targeted and firebombed. So you have all of this nastiness going on. So it is very much that sister against sister as well. And I think we have to see that as a very broad aspect of the civil war. It's not just the men. The women are absolutely split as well.
1: Now, the 1922 general election obviously becomes very, very important and a uh, very interesting conundrum here because Sinn Féin policy was very much that women over the age of 21, because in 1918 women it was women over the age of 30, but the women over the age of 21 should be allowed to vote. The first election where that becomes possible is 1922. It doesn't happen. No. What, what goes wrong? Why not?
3: Well, it's funny, suffrage becomes a hot talking point again in 1922. And again, it, it's, it's interesting how women's history takes a kind of different chronology than, than male history, even in the decade of centenaries. We think in you know 2018, we did the whole commemoration of suffrage, but actually it's back again in 22 because there is the promise that women will have the same access to suffrage as men. But if they, the register isn't updated, the June election will only have women over the age of 30 voting. So Kate O'Callaghan, the TD, who had voted against the treaty and was the widow of the Lord Mayor, Mayor of Cork who'd been assassinated by the Black and Tans, moves uh, an article of legislation that the uh, register be updated for all women over the age of 21. Collins and Griffith resist saying, you know, oh, it can't be done in time and we really can't be having that now and, and you know it's going to be in the Constitution. There are delegations sent... In with Hannah Shee, Skeffington, with many of the other women who had been, uh, you know, suffrage campaigners. Interestingly, Jenny Wise Power, who had been a suffrage campaigner as well, and who you would think would support this, feels she can't support it because she sees what they are doing. They are people who are against the treaty, who want the younger women to be able to vote. And then the potential is that many, or the majority, of women under the age of thirty will vote anti-treaty, and that could actually defeat the treaty in the June election or defeat the the treaty candidates. So the common the Saoirse women, despite many of them having been suffragettes in their day, cannot support that campaign to get the register updated. Collins and Griffiths refused to do anything about it and the June election happens with only women over the age of 30 being able to vote now whether or not if we had the younger women voted the treaty would have been defeated I don't think so I don't think there was enough of them to carry it that It wasn't
1: really even close And we? it wasn't
3: that close It was two to and, one in yeah. terms
1: of pro and anti-treaty Sinn, yes. Sinn Féin and then all the other uh, parties the Independence and Labour and Farmers Party were all pro-treaty Were
3: all as pro-treaty well. and plus not all of the younger women were anti-treaty mm. anyway but they weren't going to take that chance.
1: Now, there's been a lot of work done during the decade of centenaries, including, but you know, by people like yourself, which has brought the women's stories back into, thankfully, the general narrative. Uh, this year, you're determined not to let the centenary of the Common Man Convention uh, go unmarked. How are you marking it?
3: Well, I I had recognised that or noticed that um, nobody was doing anything about this convention uh, in early February. And I think it's a very, very important meeting to mark, but also a very important moment in the history of militant and political women's organisation in this country, When coming them on split. So I had some seed funding left over, thanks to UCD Decade of Centenaries. And I just decided to organise an online symposium, which will be on the 25th of February from 2 to 4 pm, with great speakers uh, Leanne Lane, Margaret Ward, Katrina Bowman, chaired by Fanula Walsh. I'll be speaking myself to mark. What happened in February 1922 in the biggest women's organisation, really, that was in early 20th century Ireland and the most important and the impact legacies and memories of that split. So, February
1: 25th. And we put all the details of the symposium on our website. We wish you every success with it. It sounds like there'll be some fascinating talks. So If anyone would like to know more about what Mary has been talking about this evening, make sure to uh, to book your ticket for that uh, symposium. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for coming in on the show to talk about this hugely important event that happened 100 years ago this month that's all we've time for on this evening's program details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show our researcher is liz gillis the history show is a pegasus production for rte for now for me miles Duncan, and producer morgan clancy goodbye and thanks for listening